0: Thank you, Wesley. I, um, in case any of you are around when the time comes, and I hope it's a ways off, please make sure they sing that hymn at my funeral, and I mean that. I want that hymn sung at my funeral. I love that hymn so very much. Thankful for it. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Last week, the title of my message was Apostasy. And we read in here a grave warning against apostasy, against abandoning the faith of falling or away from Christ. Now, we said a, a true Christian cannot ultimately lose his salvation. There are those who appear to be sincere Christians, but in reality, they're not. And the fact that they fail to persevere is an indication. Uh, it's a proof that they never really were converted. Now, honestly, this... Hebrews 6, 4 to 9 is, is, is a troubling passage, or 4 to 8. Uh, it, 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 it can stir up concerns in us. But I would remind you, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to convince us uh, Convince the readers of the supremacy of Jesus Christ—that Jesus is better than anything in all the world—and part of the motivation for that message was that the writer was concerned that some of these Hebrew Christians might uh, might find that the difficulties of Christian life of following after the Lord were so great that they were tempted to, to go back to, Ju- to Judaism tempted to abandon this life we've been given in Christ. And so over and over, he establishes for us the supremacy of Jesus Christ over, uh, over the prophets, over uh, Moses, over the angels, over the sacrificial system, over all of it, to show that all of it points to the Lord Jesus. And basically his question over and over is, why would anyone abandon the reality for the shadows? Why would anyone go back to those things that are not Christ. Why would anyone go back from him to anything which is much less? And the writer is concerned that that could potentially happen to some of his readers. And so we find here these warnings... Uh, contained in the book of Hebrews. And uh, verses 4 through 8 are possibly the most serious warning of all, but then we come to verse 9 and following, and we find actually an encouragement. So I want to read, I'm going to start in Hebrews 4, verse 6, excuse me, 6, verse 4, and then I'll go through verse 12. So please follow. We read, it is impossible, verse 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have... Uh, Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that is drunk in the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receive a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned though we speak of this way yet So here we read this faithful pastor who who wants to warn his readers against falling away, but he also wants to encourage them uh, to persevere. And the antidote or the preventive to falling away is actively persevering after Christ. And so we find a much more encouraging message here in verses 9 and following. It's as if he's saying, I think of you more as the land that drinks in the rain and bears fruit, not the land that drinks in the rain and only bears thorns and thistles. And I want to hasten to say here, my purpose in preaching our church through the book of Hebrews is not because I'm concerned that uh, significant numbers of our people are on the verge of falling away. Uh, there's rich, rich truth here for us to hold up and understand more about who Jesus Christ is. And I told Pastor Mark this morning, uh, uh, he, he mentioned as he's talking about the, the, uh, the tabernacle and the, the furniture and, and seeing the fulfillment of these things in the book of Hebrews, he said he didn't want to… Uh, uh, Steal my thunder, as it were. I said, Mark, you can't steal my thunder. You can set my table. Uh, And so, absolutely, uh, make those connections. You're just setting the table for when I get to those passages as well. Um, uh, But I'm I'm very thankful for that overlap. But my sentiments regarding you, the saints at Grace Baptist Church, very much in line with what we read in these verses. This, this, This writer has concluded the warning now with word of encouragement. Four things I want to point out in our text this morning, or this evening, rather. First of all, is that true saints will persevere, and then secondly, God will reward those who persevere. These are simple statements. Thirdly, perseverance is active, not passive, and then finally, saints—the saints before us—left us an example of perseverance. True saints will persevere. God rewards those who persevere perseverance active not passive and then finally those saints who went before us left us an example of perseverance so let's look first of all verse 9 we see that true saints do indeed persevere he says though we speak in this way yet in your case beloved we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation the writer is convinced that in their case and uh, i trust your case better things than what we read about before better than what well better than falling away Things accompanying salvation. Well, the opposite of falling away is persevering. And so he's convinced that they're going, that their faith is genuine, and they will persevere to the very end. Now, perseverance in faith is part of true salvation. In the ESV, it says uh, these things that belong to salvation. That word belong actually means holding fast to salvation. So, it's as if our faith is, is, is validated by our holding fast to our salvation. And that's why I say I'm convinced that they're going to persevere. That's why he is convinced that they will persevere, because that persevering is integral to true salvation. Now, even though he's expressed concerns, and he'll continue to do so, uh, even though he gives these serious warnings, um, he's not saying the warnings aren't legitimate, that they're not important. It's important as we read this, we understand what he is saying and what he's not saying. Okay? He does not expect them to abandon the faith. He doesn't feel like they're on the precipice getting ready to jump over the edge. That's not what he's saying here. He recognizes uh, that, that one of the means that God employs to keep us persevering is these very kinds of warnings. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, you don't need to turn there. Uh, Turn there. I I do want you to turn there and follow along. Keep your finger in Hebrews. But in Acts 17, I want to show you uh, uh, an important uh, analogy to these kind of warnings. Paul uh, is a prisoner. He has appealed to Caesar. And so, he uh, has been taken prisoner and is on the way to Rome to stand trial. And uh, he is about to board a ship, and he tells them uh, the weather's not right. This, this is a dangerous thing to do. We shouldn't sail now. There's not a good time to set sail. Uh, but they didn't listen to him. The, it says the captain listened to the others rather than to Paul, and they set sail. And within a short time, they encountered a very violent storm. And after three days, the ship had been tossed back and forth by the winds and the waves. And pick up in Acts 17, verse 20. I don't know why I put Acts 17, it's not Acts 17, it's Acts 27, thank you, somebody here can count, his name is not Jamie. All right, Acts 27, thank you, Wesley. Uh, Verse 20, we read, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Utterly hopeless situation. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I've been told. All right, so Paul tells these pagans, these unbelievers, the God whom I serve, the God who is the God over the storm, sent an angel. The angel said, Paul, you're going to get to Rome and you're going to appear before Caesar. And in fact, everybody in the boat, everybody on the ship is also going to survive. So you don't need to fear. Then we come down to verse 30. They are, they've, they've, they've taken soundings. The, the water's getting shallower and shallower. They know they're near shore. They're actually afraid they're going to run into rocks and, and, and the ship is going to break apart. So in verse 30, we read, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, that'd be a lifeboat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, taking nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take in some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. We read later that 276 souls were on board that ship and every single one survived. Now, wait a minute. You say, first of all, Paul says... We're all going to live. We're all going to make it out alive. <clears throat> and then he says to these soldiers who are trying to escape, if you cut, these, if you, if you cut and run, you're going to perish. Well, is he contradicting himself? No. Because that warning is what the Lord used to convince those soldiers to get back on the ship where they lived. And that not a hair uh, was, was, was harmed on any of their heads. And so, it was God employing these very warnings to fulfill the promise that they would all survive. And in the very same vein, the, the warnings of Hebrews are employed as a means that God uses to keep true saints persevering. And we can't simply say, it doesn't matter what we do. It does matter what we do. But we're not saved by our own faithfulness, by our own efforts. We are saved by the grace of our faithful Heavenly Father. But these warnings that we find in Hebrews are part of the means that God uses to keep us persevering to the very end. And I want you to see in verse 10 that God is going to reward those who persevere. Back in Hebrews 6, verse 10 For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. One of the reasons that He has his confidence. Well, he says, I'm confident of better things for you, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work, and so forth. We might say that, uh, that, that one of the reasons he was confident was that God is faithful to his promise. God is just. He's not going to overlook their work. He is faithful to the promises that he made, the promise of eternal life, that not one would perish. <clears throat> and that promise includes he will. he began a good work in you. He'll complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That good work... Is manifested in fruit bearing. Every true Christian will persevere because God will preserve his people. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 10. The focus in this verse is on what we do, not on what God has done for us or in us or through us. You see that? Look at verse 10 again. <clears throat> God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The focus is on what we do on our responsibility. And when he speaks of these good works, these works of service, it's, a, it's a, uh, in the same vein as what we find Paul telling us in Ephesians 2.10 that says, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them or that we should do them. In Ephesians 2.10, the focus is on the sovereignty of God, that God prepared these good works in advance for us to do them. But it concludes with the responsibility that we have to do them in order for them to get done in order for it to matter. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, uh, that in his prayers, he says, I'm remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is remembering those things that these saints had done for the sake of the kingdom. And Paul is not the only one taking notice. He says, uh, here, Hebrews tells us that God notices. He is not unjust as to overlook your labor, your faithfulness, your work, your service, which you have given. I want you to notice the, name, the motivation for this service that we find here. It's a love for the name of Christ. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The love you have for his name is In serving the saints. It is the love for the name of Christ, the character of Jesus, all he is, who he is, and what he has done for us. As we uh, we look out of the heavens and we say, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that, that heart that moves toward the Lord should then move toward wanting to serve those whom he loves. So, serving the saints is a clear manifestation of love for the name of Christ. Tom Schreiner said one of the key indications that one belongs to God is a genuine love for his name and his glory, and the fruit of love for his name and his glory is we serve the saints. And in fact, uh, Jesus told us that not even a cup of cold water given because you're his disciple will be overlooked, that God will reward even that small gift for his purposes, for his name's sake. So, the evidence, how do I know I love His name? How do I know I love His glory? Because there's something inside of me that is eager, is willing to serve the saints. And and notice, it's the service you have rendered and you continue to render. You have served and you are still serving. There should be a life of continual service to all the saints. Now, let's be very honest. How many of us get up in the morning and we're just immediately, how can I serve more saints today? Right? Some of you actually do that. Some of you, you are so hardwired to serving the people of God because your life is focused that way. Others of us, we need a little, <laughs> we need a little uh, reminder, a little motivation. That's why these reminders are in Scripture to motivate us and to move us to do that which God intends for us to do. But I want you to notice that to say I love God and then not be willing to serve his people is a contradiction. There's something wrong there. In 1 John 4, uh, verse 20, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he's saying, you can't love God and hate your brother. Well, you also can't love God and refuse to serve your brother or neglect your brother. In fact, he goes on to say, if anyone has this, this world's goods and sees his brother in need and doesn't help him, how can he say the love of God is in him? So our love for God, if we love the Lord, if we love his name, we should love those things and those people whom he loves. So their love for God's name here was not merely contemplated. It was not merely uh, a, a personal thing with me and Jesus sort of, but it was, it was uh, demonstrated and tangible acts of service to the saints, to the people of God, both in the past but continuing on in the present. That was the characteristic of their lives. Now, he's not talking here about salvation by works. God is going to reward you based on what you do as if we're saved by works. James chapter 2, James discusses the uselessness of claiming to have faith that doesn't result in tangible obedience, tangible works. Uh, He says in James chapter 2, verse 18, "'Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works.'" Uh, the, the way that uh, many theologians have, dis- has, have, have explained it is we're not saved by faith combined with works but we are saved by faith that works and in fact James goes on to say that faith without works is dead dead faith saves no one We're not saved by faith that does not result in works. That's just a contemplated faith. That's an agreement with certain facts, but it's not a true trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not evidence of a transformed life. If he has transformed our lives, if he's given us real faith, it's going to bring forth fruit, tangible obedience, tangible works. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us that he's the vine, we're the branches, and we're to abide in him. And when we abide in him, we'll bring forth much fruit. And he goes on to say a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And the way we prove to be his disciples is we bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, think about this for a minute. Jesus tells us in this context that those who do not abide in him... Who do not bear fruit? They're like a dead branch. That's they're 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 bundled up and they're thrown in the fire. Uh, now the illustration. Every illustration you can you can you can make an illustration say more than it was ever intended to say. And we could take that illustration, saying, no, "Wait a minute! You got this dead branch that's cut off and thrown in the fire because it's not bearing fruit anymore." but apparently it had to be alive because it was connected to the vine at some point. Therefore, a real Christian can lose his salvation. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's simply saying, by way of illustration, you abide in me. What happens when a branch abides in the vine? bears fruit. A, ba- a branch that fails to abide in the vine bears no fruit. It's burned up. He's not teaching that a real Christian can lose his salvation. He's teaching that if we don't abide in Christ, we're not going to bear fruit, and that's evidence that we're not in him to begin with. Just like the thorny soil and the rocky soil, the seed springs up, but there's no root, there's no life, and there's no fruit as a result. But he says here God is faithful. He is just, and he will not overlook. He will not forget. He will reward that service. That's interesting. Scripture gives us a couple of different perspectives, two Two perspectives. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin on our perseverance. From the perspective of God's sovereignty, he preserves us. He seals us with his spirit. He began the good work. He completes it the day of Christ. He sees us through to the very end. But he flipped the coin over, and you look at the responsibility of man, and we are called to pres- persevere. And the evidence that we're persevering in faith is that we're persevering in good works, that we're bringing forth fruit, that we're proving our love to Christ, that we obey And here's the amazing thing. Our salvation is entirely by grace through faith, right? God the Father from all eternity sovereignly set his heart and his love upon a people. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to redeem us. And to make us his. He sent his spirit to quicken us, to make us alive so that we pass from death to life. And we repented of our sins and we had faith in Christ because he gave us the gift of repentance and the gift of faith. He redeemed us. He he called us. He justified us. He adopted us into his family. Ultimately, he will glorify us. It's all God's free gift paid for by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he secures that we will persevere. He ensures that we will. Now, we have to do that. We have to daily deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. We don't become puppets or robots with no mind. We have a will, and our will is set free for the first time to truly please the Lord. You ever think about that? The unbeliever, he's dead in his trespasses and sin. His will is in bondage. He cannot please the Lord. He cannot choose purity and righteousness and godliness he can do some good things and 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 natural man does some good things no question about it but his will is in bondage to do the most important things submit himself to the Lord but the real Christian has been born again he's been given a new heart Uh, he's passed from death to life and now our will is set free to seek and to choose to please the Lord sometimes we don't sometimes we choose wrongly Sometimes we fail miserably. But we have the ability now truly to please God and to obey him. And we have to choose to do that. But God secures that we will. And here's the amazing thing in all that. All that God has done. And he says, now, this is what you must do. Not to earn it, but to give evidence that it's real. And then when we give that evidence, he rewards us for our obedience. He blesses. He gives crowns as we uh, read about in the, uh, or we sang about in one of our hymns a few moments ago. He rewards our response of obedience to His gracious gift. That's an amazing thing. Now, some of you may find at times that you serve, uh, but you can get discouraged because nobody else seems to know, nobody else seems to care, nobody else seems to think what you're doing matters. But let me assure you, whether anybody else knows or not, God knows. Whether anybody else remembers or not, God will never forget. Whether anyone else appreciates what you do for Christ or not, he says, or he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we're to do all that we do as unto him with our eye on him, recognizing he is the one we serve. And he is the one who ultimately will reward. And the language used in verse, uh, verse uh, uh, 10 is, is really strong. God is not unjust so as to overlook your service, your love for his name. For God to do that, to overlook that, would, would deny his holy justice and character. He will faithfully do what he said he will do. He will reward our obedience. Now, have you ever heard the, the term an exercise in futility you know what that word, that means you're, you're you're spinning your wheels you're you're doing you're you're engaging in some uh some uh some project some process and it, you just keep hitting a brick wall i'm using all these idioms uh that 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 you it just it's just not working and you're tempted at some point to say what is the use Now, let me tell you, as believers in Jesus Christ, there are times when it seems like no matter how hard we try, our obedience seems to accomplish little or nothing. And we're tempted to say, what is the use? Think of Abraham. God said, you're going to bear a son, or your wife Sarah is going to bear a son. And through that son, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through you, the entire world will be blessed. 20 years later, no child. 21 years later, 22 years later, 20. and how many times were Abraham and Sarah simply scratching their heads going, this seems to be an exercise in futility. We, what's the use in believing that God is going to fulfill that promise? He did fulfill that promise, didn't he? He absolutely did, and we'll see more about that next week. Have you ever invested your life in someone else? You really poured yourself into that person. You've loved them, you've mentored them, you've discipled them, you've cared for them, you've, you've maybe helped them get out of some trouble, whatever. And it really seems like it's a fruitful relationship and then something happens and you don't even know what it was. Or maybe you do, maybe you made some big mistake and suddenly everything has changed and they turn their back on you. They maybe even leave your life altogether and you find yourself going, was it all for nothing? What's the use Isn't that discouraging? Go back here and it says, God is not unjust as to overlook your love for his name and the service you have rendered for the saints and you're still rendering. And even if earthly fruit, (laughs) earthly results may not be what you'd hope for, that's not our primary uh, concern. Our primary concern is our Father in heaven who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Adoniram Judson spent seven long years preaching the gospel in Burma, dealing with sorrow and hardship upon sorrow and hardship and persecution and opposition, seven years before he saw a single person come to faith in Jesus Christ. How many times was he tempted to say, what's the use? Now, we know over time the Lord used Judson to bring about massive numbers of people coming to Christ in a vibrant church for quite some time in the land of Burma. God is not unjust is to overlook our labors in him I love 1 Corinthians 15, 58 he says be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord why? because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord live with that confidence nothing done in his name is ever overlooked nothing done in his name ever goes unrewarded now Those of you who are members at Grace Baptist Church, you know that uh, we we sign this document. It's an application for membership, and we make commitments to do certain things, to look out for the purity and the prosperity of the church and so forth. But one, it says, and to engage in some definite Christian work. Let me ask you, what is your definite Christian work? Are you committed on a regular basis to serving the Lord, serving His saints, to serving in some way that is definite, that is tangible. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the context of the local church. We have a, a couple here who uh, they're uh, committed every week to go to the prisons and, and, and the jails and, and to preach the gospel and to mentor and disciple people in jail. That's not happening in here, but it's a definite Christian work. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, Brett and Sandra Braidman, by the way, and if that interests you, they could use some help, Right. Uh, so, if you're interested in, in, in ministering in the context of jails, see the Braidmans. They've been doing it for many decades. They moved to Greenville, but they've been 35, 40 years uh, engaged in this kind of ministry in California. Definite Christian work. Maybe it's watching the nursery. Maybe it's running the audiovisual up there that nobody sees. Maybe it's uh, uh, any number of ways that Christ receives service, that His people are served. Maybe it's in front of people. Maybe it's behind the scenes. uh, But what is the definite Christian work that God has for you? It's going to look different for each of us. But I believe every single one of us ought to be engaged in serving the Lord. You know, uh, one thing I've noticed in... And I, I don't, if you're in the younger generation of adults, young adults, please don't take this as a slam, but I've noticed there are a lot of young adults who don't have this intentional ministry mindset that some of us grew up with. So if you're my age, you, you, you probably remember that term, a ministry mindset. And, and, and we were challenged to order our lives around personal ministry, and we saw the benefits of doing that from early in our Christian lives, and it set the trajectory of our lives, I've heard young people say, well, I'm young right now, and I I don't want to make a lot of commitments because I've got uh, things I want to do. How many of those things that you want to do that keep you from serving Christ will get you a well-done, good, and faithful servant on the final day? How many of us would say, I wish I had done more of those things, or I wish I had served my Savior that I had more crowns to cast at his feet? God has prepared good works that each of us ought to do them. We've got to do them. And we shouldn't be afraid to make commitments to serve the Lord. What happens when there are those who are part of God's church but are not really embracing this ministry mindset, you have a small number of people doing the large majority of the work, and they get tired, they get worn out, uh, and that should never happen. There ought to be an equal, uh, not necessarily an equal, but an equitable distribution of labor. You now, we all have various uh, stages of life. We have chapters in our lives, and uh, young mothers with, with, with little ones, you may feel like you're on the shelf for a time. You were serving, you were doing all sorts of things, and suddenly you've got no time anymore because oh, you've got this, this baby or these babies, these children to take care of, and that takes up so much of your time. The Lord sees that. He knows. We see that. We know. We've got wives who've, you know, had little kids at a time. We go through stages in our lives. And as you get older, it may be that you cannot do as much physically as you once did, but that doesn't mean it's time to retire from serving Christ. It means we do what we can. And sometimes this flurry of activity that we engaged in as young people looked like we were accomplishing a lot, but eh, whether it was or not, Who knows? and it may be less but more focused activity carried out in wisdom and maturity, actually accomplishes far more than you could ever imagine. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that God has given us apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means we're to equip you guys to get busy serving for his name and his people. And he goes on, he says in verse six, 15 and 16, he says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in together in love. Each part is to be working properly. Now, I feel like tonight I'm preaching to the Sunday night crowd, I'm sort of preaching to the choir. Uh, Most of you do serve. But every one of us ought to have that ministry mindset that God has a work for me to do. What ought it to be? How might I do that? Uh, It's not simply so others won't get worn out. It's not just so that you'll do your fair share of the work. And it's not out of a sense of obligation I've got to do this, because if I don't, somebody, you know, nobody will. It's what gratitude looks like. God has done so much for me. How can I not? Is an evidence that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's how you, it's bringing forth much fruit. You prove to be his disciple. And it's a demonstration of love for his name. You serve the saints. Well, perseverance, thirdly, is active. It is not passive. Look at verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. The reason that we have these warnings is this pastoral concern. Uh, They're serious warnings, but he's convinced of better things. Sincere believers who persevere. And the evidence of that perseverance in verse 11 is this earnestness. We desire to see this earnestness. Now, there's an interpretive question. Put on your thinking cap for just a minute, all right? Read verse 11 again. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So is he saying you are to show the same earnestness so that you might seek to attain full assurance? In other words, be earnest to seek and to attain full assurance. Or is, to, is he saying we should be earnest in serving him and that earnest service results in full assurance to the very end? Now, some of you are going to say, ha, I know, Pastor Jamie, what you do. You do this all the time. You say, is it this or that? And the answer is yes. Yes both well in this case I don't think it's yes in this case I think it's be in this case I think it's not so much earnestly seek full assurance it's earnestly serve the Lord be diligent That is the same word that we find in second 2 Timothy 2 15 that says that the those who preach Timothy is to be diligent in 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 serving the Lord and rightly handling the word of truth And so we should be diligent in serving the Lord. And as we do that, as our focus is on serving Christ and we bring forth fruit, there's this byproduct of assurance. It's not that you're seeking it. It just sort of falls on you in a sense. It's kind of like people who seek happiness. I just want to be happy. And so they make decisions based on what they think is going to make them happy. And they're always pursuing happiness. And what you find in many cases is their focus is on all the places where they're not happy. And the more they seek it, the less they seem to find it. But if we get busy doing what God would have us do, we find that happiness is a byproduct many times. And so this full assurance is not the goal, it's the fruit. It's the byproduct of serving our Lord faithfully. Rather than doing the things that, uh, for the purpose of getting assurance, do those things that, 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 that please the Lord. And a fruit of that will be this Wonderful blessing called the full assurance of hope. And that's one of the rewards of faithful service. God is not going to overlook. One of the rewards as we serve him is a sense of that assurance, that confidence before the Lord. Now, we talked last week about three types of assurance of salvation. I want to remind you of those briefly. There's propositional assurance where you believe the promises of God. Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. I believe these objective promises are true. Therefore, I have a basis on which to say I believe this Promise applies to me, therefore I have a reason for assurance. That's propositional assurance. The second one is immediate assurance. That's where the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're sons of God. Romans 8 speaks about that very directly. And there's this, this, the first one is objective. The second one's more subjective. I, I, I sense the Spirit confirming in my own heart the reality of Christ in me. Now, that's what we all want. We want to dwell with this, this constant sense of the Spirit just assuring us and affirming us all the time. And sometimes we have it. and sometimes we don't. I find for me it's more powerful in moments of trial and struggle. It's interesting in Romans 8, it says, by The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. The Spirit by whom we cry, cry of distress, literally, Abba, Father. Sometimes it's in those squeezing, distressing moments that we have the greatest sense of the presence of God in our lives. But the third type of assurance is mediate assurance. That's the fruit of grace, the fruit of faith in your life where you see those evidence of God at work. And that's the focus of this verse 11. You show this earnestness, this this diligence to bring forth fruit, and the result of that is greater assurance, greater uh, sense of the presence and the reality of God in your life. Your confidence in Him grows. It's not that you're taking credit for what God is accomplishing in your life or through you. Rather, you're humbled and encouraged that God is at work, and you see that, and that gives a greater sense of assurance that he would work even through you. This word, earnest, it's a sincerity of heart, but it's also a diligence of effort. We demonstrate earnestness. He says, I want you to show the same earnestness. We demonstrate it by what we do. We, uh, that's why I said that, that perseverance is active it's not passive it's not, uh, it's not just sitting back and contemplating faithfulness to Christ it's being busy serving him and it's not going through the motions it's a sincerity there's an earnestness of heart that we love his name and from love for his name we serve the saints there's this diligent active fruit bearing love and this active perseverance, it, it, it needs to result in visible and observable good works. We should be making progress. We should not be regressing or, or merely treading water. Uh, if you're a young person, again, don't say, I've got plenty of time to start serving the Lord. The patterns you establish now are probably will set the trajectory for your life. And so, what earnestness are you showing now in serving the Lord? And you might say, well, uh, maybe I'm not a Christian. Well, if you're a Christian and you're hearing the Word and you respond to the Word, that's an evidence of God's work in you. That's why the Word is preached. And maybe if the Lord uses His Word to convict you and to challenge you and say, I need to get serious about this, that's a powerful evidence of the work of Christ at work in you. But if you order your life around your own comfort and your own convenience, then That's probably how you're gonna remain the rest of your life. But if you order your life around uh, serving Christ, serving his people, it becomes natural. It becomes instinctual. You don't hear of a need and go, why do I have to do this? You say, why not me? And it's, it's natural and it's normal to step forward and say, this is something I believe God would have me to do. And when you live that kind of life, that kind of willingness... That kind of earnestness, one of the results is that full assurance. If you're saying, why should I have to do it? Don't, don't be surprised if you wrestle with assurance of salvation. <laughs> it, it shouldn't surprise you at all because you're not living for the kingdom. But if your heart is engaged in kingdom adventures, kingdom ambitions, kingdom uh, 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 vision, aspirations, along with that goes a, a certain kingdom confidence. I want you to notice these last three words of verse 11, until the end. We want to have full assurance of hope till the end. We need to show the same earnestness until the end, which means we don't let up. And again, you may be getting older. You may not be able to do some of the things you were able to do younger in life, but there is still much you can do. Let me urge you, those of you whose hair is gray and whose bodies are not nearly as strong as they used to be, there's much you can still do for the sake of the kingdom. And I remember my mother uh, lying in a bed in a nursing home saying, why does God not go ahead and take me home? What can I do? And I said, Mom, you can pray. You can pray for us. You can pray for the people who are here. You can, uh, if you can do nothing else, you can pray. And my mother had a vibrant prayer ministry uh, in her nursing home, especially to the people who took care of her. And there were many times I would go in the room, and she's in there praying for one of these uh, certified nursing assistants or one of the nurses who is uh, ministering to her, but she's praying for them. And they would come in, Miss Maggie, pray for me about such and such. We can make an impact until the day we go home to glory, if our hearts are determined to do so, to the very end. He says here in verse 12, we Make sure we're earnest to the end so that you may not become sluggish or lazy. There are many people who profess the name of Christ, but they have very little spiritual motivation. They don't have much kingdom ambition. They're comfortable, they're sluggish. You know, it's amazing. I've had the privilege in the past several years to travel to India and to Nepal to engage with believers. Now, many of them are village pastors uh, and their their families, uh, but but many other believers as well. The amazing thing about some of these village pastors, their churches don't pay them because they can't. So they're farming or they're doing some other subsistence type job and they're shepherding a church because they love the kingdom. Their lives are oriented around serving Christ. They don't have the same kind of comforts and opportunities that we have. They don't have the the entertainments and the distractions that we have. And in those cultures that are largely Hindu and Muslim, they have opposition that we cannot relate to. And yet, there is a focus and there is a purposefulness to their lives, the way they study the Word, the way they discuss the Word, the way they make disciples, the way they share their faith. Their lives are oriented much more around advancing the kingdom than many times my own and those of us here in the U.S. Those early disciples in Acts chapter 2, it says daily they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer uh, and the fellowship. Now, there was a temporary period of time where you had lots of people coming from uh, their homes and they stayed in Jerusalem for a period of time because there were no churches to go home to. When persecution broke out and they, they, went, uh, they left, they returned. But there was this intensity at the beginning. But over time, there were rhythms of faithful obedience and service. And in Acts chapter 8, when, when persecution did break out, it says the people went everywhere. And it says those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That was the focus and the purpose and the orientation of their lives and the longing of this faithful pastor who wrote, if the book of Hebrews is that we not be sluggish, that we not be lazy, that we show that very same earnestness unto the end. And then finally, just, just briefly, the saints who went before us, as Wesley talked about in that hymn, they, sh- they left us an example of perseverance. Verse 12, we should be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of in the weeks, I, really months to come, we'll come to chapter 11, which has often been called the Hall of Faith. And we find the, the accounts of those faithful servants of Christ who persevered to the very end. Men like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Noah and Sarah. Not just men, women too. Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Moses, Rahab the prostitute, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, And we read of their faith and their faithfulness. And we come to chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Having been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Now, those witnesses are not standing there witnessing what you're doing. They're not watching you. They're testifying of the faithfulness of God. It's Abraham and Noah and Jacob and David and all the others testifying to you that God is faithful to his promises and he will see you through to the end. Knowing that... Run with endurance the race God has marked out for you. And As we'll see next week, we'll look at more in depth. They persevered in their faith. And they persevered because God graciously preserved them. There's tremendous benefit in studying the lives of the Old Testament saints. And New Testament saints, by the way. And, and, and uh, great Christians like Martin Luther that we, we heard of earlier. Now, there are those who, by conviction, they start with a text and they make a beeline to Jesus. They say, We don't want to simply look at David and say, David was brave, you and I ought to be brave too. And we just simply draw these moral lessons from, from, from these Old Testament characters. We need to see how does David show us more about Jesus? How does David represent Christ? How does Abraham represent Christ? I, you know, there's truth to that. But how does David show me how to live for Christ? How does Abraham show me how to live for Christ? I am called to be an imitator of their faith. I got to know what their faith looked like. So those who tell you we should never preach or teach character studies, but we ought to be preaching Jesus as we talk about these people's lives. What we want to preach is what Jesus did in their lives and through their lives so that we can learn to imitate their faith. First Corinthians 10, Paul talks about uh, the failure of the children of Israel in the wilderness, all the benefits they had and how they utterly failed. And he says, these things were written to us for our, uh, as, as examples, they were written down as examples for us. The example is, don't make the same mistakes they made. Well, here we're told we are to imitate the faith and the patience of men like Abraham and Noah and so forth. That's for next week, Lord willing. But I want to ask you a question It says we're to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who's the object of their faith? And who's the object of their patience? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. You know, some of you are sitting there going, Pastor Jamie, that all sounds fine and good, but you've got a full-time job as a Christian. I got to punch a clock every week and do something else. You know, when I was about 47 years old, I resigned from pastoral ministry. And I was out of ministry for eight years. And I did things like project management for Hatfield Builders where Pastor Mark uh, was the owner of that company. Taught school for a year. I drove an armored truck. And for three years, I inspected cars at the BMW plant. And that last year I was working at BMW, I was working four 10-hour shifts, they were 10 hours of work, but they started at 8 o'clock at night, they went through 6.30 in the morning. Let me say it again, 8 o'clock at night through 6.30 in the morning. And that last year I was an elder of this church, and from January, or really late December, until the following October, when I resigned from BMW and came to work full-time here, I was working those, those hours and preaching Every Sunday writing new sermons, and preaching every Sunday. Now, the reorientation of my life to make that happen was was dramatic. It was hard. I would absolutely do it all over again if that's what the Lord called me to do. No question about it. Pastor Mark owned a general contracting company. At some point in there, uh, he became a deacon and served faithfully as a deacon in this church while he's owning and running and operating this this company. And then he, he... Becomes convicted that he really ought to be pursuing the ministry. And so he enrolls in Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary that has a, a program in Charlotte, North Carolina. He drives there every other weekend, what, five years or six? Six years. Every other weekend, driving there to prepare while he's running and operating this company. And he becomes an elder in that time, and he's doing all those things. It can be done. I'm telling you this not to say, you be imitators of Jamie and Mark's faith. Not at all. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to tell you, you've got two pastors who understand what it's like to be out there in the work world and still try to serve Jesus. We understand it's hard. We understand the challenges. We understand the sacrifices. We get that. And we understand there's a time to say, we don't want to put more on you than you ought to bear But we also understand God can use us in ways we might never have imagined if we're really willing to make ourselves, put ourselves at his disposal and to show that earnestness, that earnestness that flows out of a love for his name and a love for his saints. May God give us grace to do that very thing. To the very end.